Well, today we begin chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians in our study. Um, it's appropriate, and uh, I don't believe there is anything such as a coincidence when it comes to God, that we're about to study the resurrection only a few weeks before uh, Easter and, you know, all that's apart. Because we will still be in chapter 15 when it gets to Easter time. But um, I want to make a couple of introductory comments, if I might. Uh, first of all, this is the longest chapter in all of Paul's writings. You know, he's written 13 epistles. This is the longest chapter of any of them. It is, secondly, the most detailed um, both description of and analysis of the doctrine of the resurrection. It, it is also filled with... Uh, I, it's also filled with... Um, a number of other details that, um, in just a short verse or two, answer questions that other passages of Scripture uh, raise. So I've, I've been toying uh, for several weeks with how am I going to approach this? Do I bring all of these other details and things into, uh, into our study, or should I just focus on the primary thing Paul's teaching here? So I'll kind of see how it goes. There are a number of things I would like to bring out as we go through this. But the first 11 verses are, in in one sense, the most important verses. Now, I want to remind you of something here, and uh, we have done this before, but it's been a while, and uh, I'm not sure if I can remember who all has been here or not. But I want to remind you of something, because if if you don't know this or don't remember this, you don't really understand why Paul's bringing it up. <coughs> so if you don't mind, let me, let me review this. <clears throat> Remember that Paul is writing to Greeks. The, Corinth is a Greek city. And although you know, the Roman Empire has conquered it, the Greco-Roman way of thinking is pretty, pretty standard for quite a few centuries. And they are uh, what we call dualists. And that is why this is so necessary for the Corinthians to have a proper understanding of the resurrection. That's why he's bringing it up. Okay, what does it mean? Let's suppose um, we were able, it's kind of ludicrous, but I, I'll say it nonetheless, that we were able to invite somebody back from Corinth 2,000 years ago. And anyway, as a time machine, we can bring them forward. And we would sit him down and say, how do you, how do you look at things as a, a Greek? What's your worldview? How do you look at the physical world and the material world. Now, that's not necessarily a, a, word, a phrase that you and I would talk about today. Rarely do we discuss things like this, except in a philosophy class. But for the Greeks and the Romans, that Greco-Roman world, this was central to how they thought about things. The world is divided into two segments. Now, this is not hard. You and I basically say, believe the same thing. A material world and an immaterial world. A physical world, a non-physical or spiritual world. Implying it to the individual person, we have a physical body, we have a spirit and a soul. We are a slash soul body unit. That sounds weird, even funny, but that's exactly what we are. Fred Scott is not only the body I see there that has just taken off his glasses, he is also the spirit and or, it raises another question, I don't want to get into it, but a spirit, an immaterial soul. Now, death is the separation of these two. 
The body goes into the ground, or in some cases it's cremated, and the spirit and the soul, if you put your faith in Christ, goes to be with the Lord. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now for the Greeks, the Greco-Roman worldview, they added a value judgment about each one of these. They said the material world, or the physical body of the human being is evil. The immaterial world, the spirit, soul of the individual human being, it's good. So for them, this is, this is the most important point I'm trying to get across. For them, the idea that God would resurrect the physical body which is evil was a reprehensible thought. They just couldn't imagine it. Why would he do that? Because for hundreds and hundreds of years, their philosophers had taught them that this is how you look at things. I agree with this, but I do not agree with this. To assign a value judgment to the material world, the physical body is evil, that is not what the Bible says. Now, the material world is a source of evil. But this pen, in and of itself, is not evil. Do you follow what I'm saying? That's the point. All right. So Paul has to address this with these people. He, he must address this, and he must settle this with them. I'll give you another illustration of how important this was. If you go to Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is on uh, what they call the Areopagus, Mars Hill. It's where the philosophers met. It's in Athens. It was... Um, kind of like the intellectual center of the Greco-Roman world. And it tells us in that chapter, if you go through it, uh, he, he talks to the Epicureans, he talks to the Stoics, he quotes their philosophers, and they're all resonating with him. And then the very last two verses of the chapter, he brings up the resurrection. And what's the response? They mock him. They make fun of him. But it tells us in the very last verse of the chapter, it even gives a couple of the names of people that put, put, did put their faith in Christ. So the doctrine of the resurrection was an incomprehensible doctrine to the Greco-Roman person. Because they just could not conceive of how God could do this and why he would do this. So Paul, first of all, it's really, it's really quite neat how he approaches this. He makes the doctrine, correctly so, he makes the doctrine of the resurrection part of the message of the gospel. And then secondly, he gives all of the evidence that Christ has been resurrected. And then he sets up a scenario, what if Christ was not resurrected? And he's going to go through six logical consequences if there is no resurrection. And then when he's done with that, he's going to explain what the nature of the resurrected body is. So this is a chapter that is rich, rich in a lot of teaching. And it is, it is the most important chapter in the Bible when it comes to the resurrection. There is no chapter that has more of a formed understanding as it presents the material of the resurrection. Now, I have been talking for about four or five minutes. Are you with me? Are there any questions? You must understand this, or you don't understand why it's here. 
he, he is driving home to these Greco-Roman people, you have got to have your worldview totally changed. And that's what I'm, this is Paul speaking, that's what I'm doing here. I'm challenging everything you've been taught. Where did the Greco-Roman belief that the body was bad, where, where did that source of teaching come from? Well, historically, uh, it's, it's rooted in Socrates and, and Plato. But, I mean, in one sense, Fred, it's much, much deeper than that in history, actually. But uh, this idea of a dualistic world, two material and immaterial, is pretty central to almost every world uh, religion, world teaching, uh, unless you're an atheist or something like that. What is, they're taking another step beyond that because you believe that and I believe that. That there is a material world and there's an immaterial world. There's physical and there's spiritual. What's, what they are doing with it is they're taking it an additional step and that is they assign a value judgment to it. That, that the material world is just evil. Innate, by itself evil. Whereas the, the biblical Christianity and Judaism teaches that the physical world is good. God creates it and he deems it good every element of the physical world. Now, sin, when it enters into the world, affects the physical world. It's put under a curse. Uh, And even the body is subject now to death. But God is going to overcome all of that, and that's the doctrine of the resurrection, why it's so important. So I want to do one more thing before we get into the text. Why is it so important that Jesus was resurrected? Okay. Uh, he would just be a man. Good man, probably some good teaching, but okay. From, from God's perspective and from the Bible's perspective as it presents it, what is death? I mean, how, how are we to look at death? Do you understand my question? Why? Because death, when you're in the first two chapters of Genesis, which, you know, the creation and introduction of everything, death isn't mentioned. I mean, it, it isn't a part of Adam's world. Why is there death? Because of sin. God said that the day you rebel against me, the day you sin, is the day you will die. Now, death has two elements to it. There is a spiritual death, which is separation from God, and there is a physical death, which is the separation of our body and and our soul. The The resurrection accomplishes the separation of the spirit and the soul. Because when I die, my body will go into a grave and forest lawn where Peggy and I have already purchased our lots. When Jesus comes back for me, that body will go into the air and be rejoined with my spirit. First Thessalonians chapter 4 teaches us that. How about the spiritual death? When's that taken care of? The moment I put my faith in Christ, the spiritual separation ends, and now I enjoy fellowship with God which is you know, part of so much of the New Testament teaching. 
So as Dow, Dow correctly stated it, it validates one who Jesus, I'm talking about the resurrection, it validates who Jesus is, and it validates what he accomplished, and it validates that that, that sacrifice for sin, which is the cross, was accepted. And then fourthly, it shows something. This is what we'll read later at the very end of this chapter, actually. The conquest of death. He will write, oh, death, where is thy sting? Where is thy victory? The penalty's been paid. And so authority, the authority of death in our lives, this is the words of Paul in Romans, the authority of death in our lives no longer reigns. Now, do you understand? That's, in a way, that's a metaphor, but it's, it's an important one. Because before, before you put your faith in Christ, you are facing death, not only physical death, but eternal separation from God. Putting your faith in Christ, appropriating his work to your life by faith, means both are taken care of. Your fellowship and walk with him begins now, and for all of eternity you will be with God. That separation ends, and the physical death the physical death is 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 um, is taken away through the bodily resurrection, and we have to wait for that. Because when I die, I that separation occurs. But death is no longer something that we fear in the sense of death being the eternal separation of God. It's a portal we go through, but it has no victory over us anymore because of that hope, and that's one of the major elements of biblical hope in the New Testament, the, the physical resurrection. So you see, Paul, Paul must address this, and he must address it thoroughly and comprehensively for these Greeks. And that's what he does in this chapter. It is the most important chapter in the Bible when it comes to the doctrine of the resurrection. There's no other chapter that addresses all the questions like this one. Mark. Yeah. The resurrection itself is a proof of the afterlife, that there is something else after life. And it shows that when Jesus, go, you know, there is like a big myth of are we going to be resurrected that there is an afterlife or not? And the resurrection itself is a proof of that. Is that right or not? Yeah, yes. Yes, in, in the sense, if I can put it this way, I, I'm, I'm not going to quite use the theological language you use. But the, the doctrine of the resurrection, let me put it another way. Jesus' resurrection proves that God's going to keep his promises. Yeah, that's, what, that's what I'm saying. And that part of that promise is the promise of eternal life. That's why Paul, he does, he'll do it here. He does it in, in Galatians. He does it in Ephesians. That the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of salvation. And you have to understand what the Old Testament celebration of the first fruits was. But it's the first fruits. God is going to keep his promise. How do I know that? Ah, he resurrected Jesus. He, and because he resurrected Jesus, he was the first fruits of all those who will come. That the, the Bible is saying to us, how do I know God's going to keep my promise to me of eternal life? He resurrected Jesus. And so I know eternity with him is my destiny. Why? Because Jesus was resurrected. And you can see the absolute, listen, another, this isn't directly in this, this chapter at all, but another reason the resurrection is so important is a church history reason. You have individuals 
who cowered in fear of a Roman soldier, or in the case of Peter, a young Galilean teenager who was saying, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And he says, no, 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 and he swears, he uses profanity, no! In a couple of weeks, what's he doing? He's in Jerusalem preaching in disobedience to all the authorities about Jesus. And he goes on and has years and years of ministry. Why? Why is Paul changed? Because of the resurrection. And that, that's, an, that's a, um, an indirect piece of evidence, but it is an important piece of evidence. You have, you have people who were terrified as they're walking with Jesus. Jesus is resurrected. They're not terrified anymore. They're boldly proclaiming. And that continues for a couple of hundred years. So the resurrection, listen, if, if, as he's going to say in verse 12 and 5, if there is no resurrection, let's go home and just party. Eat, drink, and be merry. But if there is a resurrection, everything has changed. Blaise Pascal, and you probably don't know that name, but he is a great philosopher coming out of the coming out of the Enlightenment. But Pascal had come to faith in Christ. He was one of the most brilliant, brilliant men of the Enlightenment. And uh, his salvation experience was so incredible to him, he kept a piece of paper in his jacket, which explained that. And uh, when he died, they found it sewed into his jacket. It was that important to him. Anyway, what's what it, he, it's called Pascal's Wager. And he used it with a lot of his friends. This is what he said. Now, you know who I am, you know what I believe, and you know that I believe in Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. You don't believe that. You reject that. That's right, I reject it. Okay, I have a wager for you. If I'm, if I'm wrong in my beliefs about Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection, and when I die, there's no real effect to that. I believe something, yeah, and I believed it was true, but if I die and it wasn't true, I really haven't lost anything. But I want you to consider this. You're rejecting what I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the key to salvation. And you reject that, and you die. What have you lost? Everything. And he says, are you willing to take that wager about life? That's a pretty effective question. Called Pascal's Wager. And he used that, it's in his little collection of essays called Pensees, but it is a, it is, it remain, I, I use it, it remains a very powerful apologetic. Are you willing to wage everything on that? What's your wager? Because you're not putting money on the table, you're putting your existence on the table. If I'm right and you reject it, in other words, if the truth about Christ is, is, is right and you reject it and you die, you've lost everything. If I believe this and live my life according to the truth and I die and it's not true, I haven't lost everything. It's just an interesting way to look at it. You ready to begin? And just one Andrew, how are you? How'd your trip go? It went great. Good, good. Still catching up. Yeah, I bet you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mark. He had been going on a long trip. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, just when you say the death is the separation from God... You know, but the, the sinners and the, 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 the people who reject Jesus um, still going to be resurrected. They're going to have afterlife. Is that right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. So, is, 
what, what is the difference between their death and the death of a believer? You know, and there's the action of a believer. You know, it's, the death of the unbeliever goes to, uh, when an unbeliever dies, a person who rejected God's grace goes to Hades. That's the word that's used in the New Testament. And then in Revelation 20, all uh, believers are resurrected when Christ comes back. Unbelievers are resurrected right before the great white throne judgment. They're resurrected for one purpose. They're resurrected for judgment. The judgment occurs, then they're cast into the lake of fire. So everyone is resurrected. Some for righteousness and eternal life with Christ, the rest for judgment and eternal condemnation and really eternal separation from God in what the, uh, Revelation 20 calls the lake of fire. I don't know how to answer your question, but that's, that's okay. So that from the time that they die and the time of the great life from judgment, which will include a thousand years minimum, not a minimum, but I mean from the time that they die until... Right, right. Know, Yes, exactly. That's going to include the millennium before they That's right. That's right. They will not be reigning with Christ at all. They'll be in Hades. Yeah, it's because uh, in, in Revelation 20 it says, and Hades is cast into the lake of fire, which is understood, uh, and the Bible doesn't tell us much about that, but be understood as that place where the unrighteous go before the great white throne. <laughs> I'm getting a little technical, but that's essentially what the scriptures teach. Let's get into something really positive and look at chapter 15. Now, if you're following in your uh, outline, it's page 20, and um, I don't think we're going to get much, much beyond the first 11 verses. But, um, again, I hope you're clear, and I, I don't want to belabor this, but you're clear on why Paul is writing this. And it's because of the dualistic worldview that they had. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. Now I want you to notice three verbs there. It's all modifying and explaining gospel. Paul preached it. They received it, meaning it decomai, they embraced it. And third, they are now standing in it. And it is that gospel by which you are saved. Since you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. I'm assuming you genuinely believed it. All right, so he's saying to them, you have heard, you've received, you stand fast in, and you're depending on the gospel. What is the gospel? For I delivered to you, verse 3, as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Because verse 5 and following is the proof of the gospel truth. But what is the gospel? It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. And as you know, gospel means good news. Now let's take that apart. Again, you see in verse 3, Paul delivered it, and they received it. He received it as well. 
that Christ died for our sins. Now, I'm, I'm going to really take parts of this and, and, and emphasize them. The preposition for is a unique preposition. It means instead of or because of or in place of substitution. So Paul has chosen a preposition which emphasizes the substitutionary work. He died in our place because of our sin. If you really flesh it out, that's what it's saying. Then he adds, according to the scriptures. Now when Paul wrote that, what were the scriptures? Torah. Uh, not just the Torah. That's the first five books. The Old Testament. It's the entire Old Testament, right? Which is the Torah, Pentateuch, first five books, plus the historical books, plus the wisdom literature books, plus all the prophecies. Major prophets, four, twelve minor prophets. So where would you go to say, according to the scriptures, Christ died in the place of us for our sins. He took our place. He was a substitution. You're going to find that a lot of places. But the most important place is Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. With crystal clear clarity... That prophecy details that this coming servant, that's the word that's used, will die for the sins of his people. He will die because of the sins of his people. He will become the object of the judgment of God for his people. God will pour out his wrath on him for his people. Substitution. Why... Does Paul add, and he does it in verse 4 as well, why does he add according to the scriptures? Now, I'm not asking you that as a scholarly question. I'm just asking you that as a common sense question. I mean, he could just have declared, I received that Christ died for our sins, period. That's the evidence. All right. It's a piece of evidence. It's a proof substantiating it. How so? Uh, because as a Jew and as a practicing Jew, they would have they would have understood his reference to scriptures as being approved. These aren't Jews. I'm sorry? These are not Jews. That's true. These are Greco Roman people. There are a few Jews, but for the most and I don't mean to put you in a corner. I don't mean to do that, but what do you think? And I, I'm asking not as a scholarly issue. I'm just asking common sense. Why, why would you think he added that according to the scriptures? I mean, you're right. But you're not completely. You're on third base, and I need you to come home. Aren't you glad baseball season starts? That's the, that's the most important sport in the United States. It really is. It's a great sport. You mean in addition to corroborating uh, his verbal statement? This is a documented in, in multiple places of what's been said that before, so if they want to go look it up, they can. Okay. 
Yes, that's exactly right. Now you're in between third base and home. <laughs> but it, yeah, and it's, it's all that, but it's just, let me add one more additional thought just for you to think about. Listen, this adds immense authority to this claim. It adds immense authority to this claim, and it validates that this is the Word of God. Now, there are 317 Old Testament prophecies about the first advent of Jesus Christ. To me, and I'm just saying that as a common sense, just landing on the table, that is a very significant set of proofs that this is trustworthy. But Jim, I'm assuming like many today, if they aren't brought up Jewish and they aren't brought up about the act, wouldn't they be just like, well, yeah, that's your scripture, that's your books, you know, that's what your stuff says, I don't give any validity. I mean, wasn't that the attitude of many of those priests? Yes, as it is today. But it's, but, but Terry, look, it's laying it out. I want you to consider these claims, these prophetic claims, and their fulfillment. You can ignore that, but it's like um, you present, uh, I believe the earth is round. I believe the earth is a part of a solar, uh, a solar system that revolves around the sun. I believe that the earth is part of a solar system that is part of a galaxy that is, you know, I can just, how do I know that? Well, I'm just saying, I, you're just saying that. I don't believe that. I believe the earth is flat, and I believe the earth is the center of the universe. Which one's true? No, that's not a hard question. <laughs> Which one's true? The one where the evidence bears out the claim. You're making a truth claim. Paul is making a truth claim that Jesus, de- Jesus Christ died for our sins on behalf of, in place of us as sinners, according to the scriptures. That's first proof. Next set of proofs is going to be all the witnesses to this. But the first proof, okay, it's a proof. What is it? This is part of the evidence. It's part of the pattern of evidence. Now, I'm telling you, if you want to take the time and check out the 317 prophecies about Jesus Christ in, the, in his first advent, here they are. Go check them out. Oh, I don't believe them. Okay. It's the evidence. It's like somebody saying, look, I'm going to show you with the Hubble, Hubble telescope all the complexities of this universe and the Earth's position in that. That's evidence. Do you want to accept? No, I don't accept it. Okay. I mean, it's, it's, you know, okay, if that's what you want to be, if that's how you want to look at that. Paul is presenting what anyone would present. Here's what the propositional truth claim statement is, and here's the evidence for it. You either accept it or reject it. But here's the evidence. And the Roman uh, time was like, there's a whole bunch of theories going on, and he's presenting a theory that has been proven right, so it gives legitimacy and stronghold. Exactly. Because it's all of their beliefs is based on different theology, different theories from different thinkers and different philosophers. And he's bringing in this and saying, this one has been proved, and here's what's happened. Exactly. Now listen, and I I don't want to get too deeply into this, but this is very important to me. Truth is a proposition. You're making a claim about something. That's what truth is. How do you validate that as truth? By the evidence. And if you, the reasonableness of Christianity... Is, is clear and very defensible. 
but you have to take time to investigate it. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about how you analyze and think about anything. Many people come to Christ without any evidence about Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. I mean, in terms of it being historically validated stuff. Because you, you get so, so often your sin is so overbearing, the guilt is so overwhelming, that just the message that somebody has taken care of it. And that's how you respond in faith. Because don't forget, and this is really apologetics, apologetics defending your faith can be something that leads you to Christ, or it can be something that substantiates what you already believe. And so in both cases, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 can work. It can be an apologetic which will lead somebody to faith. Or it can be an apologetic which enhances and strengthens what you believe. You see, right now, there is a, there, and it's a, it's a very, it's a growing, widespread body of thought in the United States of America. That Christianity is just, it's just one of the many, many smorgasbord of choices I have. And, you know, it's, it's really based on a lot of silly things. You know, no, nobody, nobody in this day and age really literally believes that there was a man 2,000 years ago that died for the human race and was resurrected. That is part of just the stories of Christianity. But it's not historical fact. Okay, you can believe that. But if you want to take time, if you really want to take the time, I can show you that it, that is not the right way to look at this. I just picked up a book written by it's a collaborative work of three men, and they're answering a guy named Bart Ehrman, who is one of the most significant critics of biblical Christianity alive right now. He teaches at Duke, and what is what is what the the press is attracted to with him is he's a graduate of Moody and he's a graduate of Wheaton, and he's turned his back on Christianity. And when you have somebody like that, the press is going to get, oh, what is it that you don't like? Because you were trained in the heart of evangelicalism. And he is so brilliant. And what these guys are doing is they're answering his claims. And it's a, it's a book. It's a great book. I'm going to use it in my class next year. It's called Truth Matters. And what they're doing, I studied under two of these guys. What they're doing is they're taking these claims and saying, okay, you know why this is so appealing? Because the vast majority of America and the vast majority of evangelicals are not well taught. Their faith is a very superficial, shallow faith. And they hear somebody coming along like Bart Ehrman or anybody, like Richard Dawkins and these other guys who are, are, are very belligerent atheists, you know, I like what they're saying. And since I'm not terribly well trained, I, I, kinda, I find it attractive what they're saying. And, you know, as a matter of fact, the more I read and the more I hear, I kind of, I believe they're probably right. And they reject the faith. What these guys are saying, hold it. Let's treat the message of the gospel like we treat any other truth claim. Let's examine the context. Let's examine the evidence. And let's examine the reasonableness of the claims of Christianity. And to just say, well, a few people believe that in the modern world. That's not truth. That's not a truth claim. That doesn't mean anything. So what? <laughs> I mean, Jesus was alive, very few people believed it. That, that people don't believe it or reject it is not, does not validate or invalidate a truth claim. It doesn't. 
it's a it's an it's an intellectually honest examination of the evidence. Christianity is not an unreasonable, irrational faith. That's why Paul is doing this, because the Greco-Roman people were used to give me the evidence for this. Because I'm not going to believe it just because you say I should believe it. I want to believe it because I've become convinced it's true. So when he says according to the scriptures, he's appealing to an authority. That if you want to, you can check it out. If you want to take the time, it's there. And I often say to people when I'm talking, listen, all I'm asking you is allow an opportunity to consider the reasonableness of this. Will you give me the opportunity to present some of the evidence? Will you take the time to investigate some of that? You know, the mass majority of people say, well, I don't know if I want to. <laughs> but that's, that's how he's doing this and why he's doing it this way. Jim, yeah. on, um, in Revelation, I was reading it not too long ago, it says that people hear what we say or they read the scriptures in a cursory way and maybe just spot read it. And they don't understand it without the presence of the Holy Spirit to guide them. Although I, I assume that God could allow that to break through. Oh, sure. Uh, and because they don't understand it, they don't accept it, and also they consider it silly. Those three mm-hmm. things are, are mm-hmm. mentioned in Revelation. Mm-hmm. It's... Exactly right, and, and they're not really committed to trying to understand it. No, they do a cursory read, and and they go, I don't, I don't get it. I, I think it's, uh, I don't understand what they're saying, and I think it's silly. Mm-hmm. Kind of like what you said, and I, I just I, that's the first time I'd uh, mm-hmm. really seen that in the scriptures. You know, because we can become frustrated wanting to share Christ and lead people to Christ. Mm-hmm. But unless they have additional grounding, they may consider it silly because they don't understand it. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, that's what we're mm-hmm. doing in this class is we're mm-hmm. trying to understand. Mm-hmm. Good, absolutely. One of my favorite proverbs is, a person claims sound very, very good until I hear the other side. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially. So what I and what Paul is doing is I want you to listen to the other side. I want you to listen to the claims of Christ. Secondly, he says, secondly, in terms of what is the content of the gospel, verse four, part A, and that he was buried. My goodness. Why is that a part of the gospel? Now, obviously, you didn't hear that question, so I will repeat it. What do you mean? Uh, that, he was, that he wasn't just sleeping or Good. passed out? Or, Good. Or he was sleeping. genuinely dead. And the Bible says for three days. You don't bury, and if you know anything about the burial chambers, you don't put a live person in one of those chambers. So, it, again, and he's structuring it in such a way to, here's the evidence. He was crucified, he died, and he was buried. 
and he's a coordinating conjunction, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. The two parts. Why does he stress the third day? That was part of the prophecy. Jesus said several times during his public ministry, on the third day, I will come back to life. On the third day, I will be resurrected. So Paul is specifically highlighting the fulfillment of what Jesus said. And according to the scriptures, same phrase as we saw in the previous verse. Is the resurrection of Jesus prophesied? Is the resurrection taught in the Old Testament? The answer is yes. It's taught, it's mentioned in detail in three places. And in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, it is specifically mentioned, and Jesus quotes it. So again, it's that appeal to authority. Yeah. Said, you, you who said you would destroy the temple yeah. and build it, raised up again in three days. Can you just can you briefly go through that exchange in terms of what he meant and what other people, how other people interpreted that? Obviously, there was a disconnect. You're actually combining two passages, two, right. two events in Jesus' life. One, when he is uh, with, I think it's in Matthew 10, uh, Matthew 12, excuse me, he says that. Um, I will destroy this temple in three days, bring it back to life, restore it. And there, he is speaking of his body as the temple. They're seeing it as Temple Mount. (laughs) And then in another passage in Matthew 24, he says, uh, when his disciples are up on the Mount of Olives, see that temple? That temple is going to be totally destroyed. Not one stone will be standing on another. It's two separate events. That is a reference to the literal temple. In Matthew 12, I think it is, he's referring to his body figuratively as the temple. They did not get the first one at all. So um, I'm not sure that I understand your question. Well, I guess that's, that's what I was just trying to understand. And, and if I remember right, um, when he was li- I mean, literally on the cross, there were... People yes, that is correct. Saying, They're mocking. You who said that you would yes. destroy the temple and, and yes. so forth. Exactly. So that was just their misinterpretation. Exactly. Exactly. Their misunderstanding of what he was claiming. That's exactly right. That's right. Now, the second reference is not. The second reference he talks about in that later chapter. Yeah, that's 24. That was a liberal prophecy that Jesus had about the temple would be destroyed. Yes. Yeah. And if you, uh, Joel, when you go to Israel with me, you will see along the western, <laughs> the western uh, wall there, uh, they, uh, they found, they've dug down to the, the street of Jesus' day, and the stones that the Roman soldiers pushed off are there. They've kept them for you to see that. Not all of them, but just one pile. It's really remarkable that the literalness of what Jesus said would happen was definitely occurring there in August of A.D. 70, and what the Roman soldiers did. It's, uh, so it was both, I mean, he, he prophesied both about his own body and the physical temple. And the physical temple, that's correct. So yeah, 
That's right. But they, they didn't understand what he was saying figuratively. They really didn't. And they were mocking him for that. Okay, so... You mentioned Psalm 16:10. I'm sorry? You mentioned that the Old Testament prophesied yes. about Jesus in Psalm, Psalm 16. Yeah. 16, 10? I think it's 10. Because David has got his enemies. He's talking about, is God going to leave me? You know, and, and even then he says, even he will not let my soul, uh, my, uh, my, uh, my soul and shield. Uh, he will uh, bring me to life. So David, I mean, uh, David, excuse me. Paul has now summarized the gospel, which he mentioned in verse 1. He summarized the content of it. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he appeals to authority. But now, he must do something else. Are there witnesses to this? Or is this just a fantasy? This is what I believe, but there really aren't any witnesses to it. Verse 5 through verse 11 is an itemization of the witnesses. And if you only take this objectively, this is one of the most attested events coming out of the ancient world. And he appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. It's Peter. And if you go back and look at the gospel accounts of the resurrection, Peter is one of the first Jesus appears to. And then to the twelve, the other disciples. Remember, twelve is just like a, it's just an established group because Judas is dead. He's committed suicide. But to the other disciples. Numbers, the third group. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Why did you tell us that? There's still some folks out here that can yeah. verify this to you. Most of those 500 people are still living. Why would he tell them that? Go ask them. If you don't believe me, you're in Corinth, go over to Jerusalem. Ask them. They're still alive. Some are still asleep. Now, see, you can say, oh, that's just a bunch of hooey. Paul was saying that. I mean, he is running, if he is not telling the truth, he's running the risk that people are going to go check out the story and say it isn't true. Paul made it up, it's a lie. The fourth piece of evidence is in verse 7, and then he appeared to James than to all the apostles. And again, that very um, confirming. It tells us that in John, uh, John's gospel and so on. This is James who wrote the, the epistle of James. This isn't James, the brother of John. And last of all, as, to, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Untimely born, he, he's, he's the last one. <laughs> His conversion is much later, remember? on the Damascus Road. For I am the least of the apostles, verse 9, who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believed. All of these individuals are proclaiming the same gospel. So Paul offers six pieces of evidence to attest 
to the validity of this historical event. Peter, the 12, the 500, James, the rest of the apostles, and Paul himself. If you don't believe me, go check out the story. And I repeat this, he is really running a risk here. Like where it says in verse 8, and the last of, of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I mean, but you said it a little differently, so it's obviously different. Uh, I, the New American Standard, which is what I'm translating from, is untimely born. He's referring there, I think, Dave, to his conversion. Born as in born again, uh-huh. n- not physically born, uh-huh. because he he's roughly the age of many of the other apostles. Right. He's referring to his 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 experience in meeting Christ and so on. He appeared to me also, and he doesn't remember it. It's later on the Damascus Road after Jesus goes back to uh, the Father, sends back to the Father. <coughs> then he appears to to, to Paul on the Damascus Road. Mm-hmm. And as you know, in Acts 9 is the account of that. That, that totally changed Paul's life. I mean, he was totally different because he says, before that, I was persecuting the church. <laughs> right. So he's just, here, here, just look at my life. It's like he's saying. My life is a testimony of this being true because Jesus met me. All right. Um, How safe for him to say I worked harder than all of them? Well, many of them were martyred very, very early. He just keeps, and uh, it sounds like a self-elevating uh, bending comment. Credibility hmm? Bending credibility as well. Bending credibility, like he's credible, he's working hard. Something that uh, Roman would approve, would appreciate, something like that. Or? I'm not sure that's. I, I'm not sure that's the intent. Of, I'm not sure that's the intent of that that he's trying to paint himself as having a very high work ethic and that will appeal to the Greco-Roman people. I'm not sure. I think he's he's making a statement that has, when they translate it into English, it it really sounds like he's elevating himself. But he's saying something about the nature of his calling, not a comparison to what the others were doing. Paul's calling is to the Mediterranean world. Peter's isn't. James's isn't. John's isn't. And, and, and his, his, his labor then, his sphere of influence, is much, much, much greater than the other 12 or 11. So, so see what I'm saying? It sounds like he's really boasting, but it's a comparative statement in terms of what he has been called to do. Not, I have a better work ethic than Peter did. I'm working harder than Peter. He's a lazy bum. That is not what he's saying. All right, now. Context, yeah. said in verse 9, though, for I am the least of the apostles. And so he's, he's really put himself lower than that. Yeah, exactly. And so you put it in context of everything he said. It's, not it's not self-elevating. That's right. And he says at least because... Listen, I believe this, although the Bible doesn't tell us this. I believe Paul, there's no record of Paul ever hearing Jesus or meeting Jesus. We, we, we would, would think that that probably didn't happen. But it's very difficult to believe that Paul would not have heard about Jesus 
And I mean, even, I mean, it just doesn't tell us it's even conceivable he would have heard him preach. And Paul's in Jerusalem, presumably. He was on the Sanhedrin, we know that. He was a Pharisee, we know that. But it's, so in a sense, he's saying, unlike these others who responded to Christ's message, I didn't. I am the least of them. Because I was, I was so antagonistic to this message, I persecuted the church. But then he says, and you saw that a couple of times, he says the grace of God. God's grace toward me explains what happened to me. is isn't anything I did. So it's a magnificent demonstration of, again, the evidence that the resurrection is true. Because it really changed my life, Paul's saying. Jim, don't you think this is important? I mean, we've had people talk about their own um, you know, children, like... Um, you know, wanting to be a witness to them or our parents or, you know, others around us that haven't come to Christ and, and Paul was a long time maybe in coming in mm-hmm. light of his exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, so we mustn't give up. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's right. I started under a man who said, um, he used to tell us this a couple times, Howard Hendricks, that he prayed for his father. Uh, Hendricks was from Philadelphia, a very difficult situation in his family. Um, but once he came to Christ, he prayed for his dad for 42 years until he saw his dad come to faith. And he just he, he believed that God was going to, to uh, uh, save his dad. And near the end of his dad's life, he came to Christ. And it, his Hendricks used to tell this story. My dad, he said his dad was a military guy. And he said when he came to faith and really understood what he said, he stood up, reporting for duty, Lord, what do you want me to do? Isn't that fantastic? I mean, it's just, and I, Hendricks, I'm assuming, he always, he was such a humorous but profound guy to listen to and study under. But that, that, I always have remembered that, simple, that, that truth, that persistence in prayer and never giving up. Because until a person takes their last breath, there's always the hope that they're going to respond. And I think we will be, I hope, and I can't prove this, but I, I think we will be pleasantly surprised in the sense that people we never thought would be in heaven are going to be there. Because at the last minute, the last day or last week, they had heard the message so many times, they responded. One of my prayers is that Christopher Hitchens, you maybe don't know that name, he's a very well-known atheist. He died of esophageal cancer uh, not too many months ago. And his brother is a believer, pastor of a church in England. And his brother just constantly, lovingly, because Hitchens spoke very lovingly of his brother. But he knew the truth. He knew what he needed to do. And my prayer is that in those last minutes, Christopher Hitchens trusted Christ. Tell what a victory that would be, this this deep profound atheist who had a large following because the moment he died, if he didn't do that, he knew that he was wrong. You just think about that. Your whole life's devoted to atheism and then the moment you die, you discover I was wrong. <laughs> it always takes me back to Pascal's wager. Which one are you to wa- willing to wager your life on? So. Now we really are going to have to bring this to an end, but what I want to do is I want to set us up for next week because I want you to, again, one more time, why does Paul structure this the way he structures it in these first 11 verses? He is presenting the reasonableness of the gospel. 
This isn't a blind, irrational leap of faith. This is a space-time historical event, and there is evidence for it. Here's the evidence. Now what he's going to do, and it's just masterful, what he's going to do is he says, okay, let's just explore for a moment. What if the resurrection is a lie? And that's what he's going to do next week. So if you want to find that out, come back. If you don't, stay away. No. <laughs> but it's great. I mean, I just I want you to see the beauty of this passage. It, it's just, it's masterfully done. It really is. And Woody, just pray for brief him. update. He's being let out of the hospital today. He's uh, going to swallow a camera if everything goes well. Oh, my it's goodness. going to take like 34,000 pictures oh my uh, of his internal organs because they couldn't find out why he was bleeding so profusely. And, What's he uh, bleeding internally? Uh, it was coming out through a stool. Oh, and, my uh, goodness. And so it subsided. And then he's... Just yeah. still struggling with. Okay. Uh, well, that's, that's he'll get out today. He wanted. He called me specifically to ask us to pray for him. Absolutely. Absolutely. So he's he's being released today. He's swallowing that camera. Then they'll evaluate all that presumably. Yeah. And, there's and, a prototype. He's gonna, they're going to do a trial mm, run to see if. It, yeah. You know, oh my. Okay. Well, thank you. We will pray for him. All right. Father, we're grateful for this um, magnificent passage of Scripture. I, I trust that the way we, we looked at this and examined it was in conformity with the uh, Holy Spirit, how you inspired this. It is one of the most important defenses of the gospel uh, presentation there is, the clarity of it and the evidence for it. And I just pray that it can, for each one of us, uh, just give us another Oh, perhaps level of confidence and certainty that this is true. This, uh, this is the centrality of what you have been doing. As the events were leading up to Jesus and now after the cross and the resurrection, we represent the gospel to a world that desperately needs to hear it. I pray that in our lives that we can represent you well. pray that all we say and do is honoring to you. And Lord, thank you for the truth and the certainty of the resurrection, because it is the basis, the foundation of our hope. It is part of our hope for the future that you will keep your promise that as you resurrected Jesus, you're going to resurrect us. We think of Woody here now today, and um, thank you that apparently he's going to be released today. We pray that this uh, camera, this um, uh, test that will be running through it to get a, a good insight into what is going on in his body, it can answer some of those questions. and. I just pray for him, give him, uh, give him the, the ability to trust you, help give him the hope that he needs, uh, give him peace, help him, Lord, to trust you, grow his faith through this, help him in his walk with you, help him in all that is a part of his life right now to abandon, in, in, in a sense, all that he has to you. He's in your hands. There's no better place for Woody to be than in your hands, and we trust him to you today. Again, Lord, we ask for great wisdom and discernment for the medical people as they're ministering to him. May they determine exactly what has caused this bleeding, and we trust him to you today. Dismiss us now with your blessing, Lord. Take care of us. Watch over us. And again, we just ask you to help us represent you well. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. See you next week. Thanks.